If you turn with me to the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, we're going to be reading from the end of chapter 13 and into 14. On your own, I hope that you'll read as well chapter 15, which is uh, the poetic treatment of this event that occurs in chapter 14. It's the celebration, Song of Moses, and it is a an example of many of the Psalms as well that praise many aspects of God's salvation, but particularly again and again praise this great event of the deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea. <clears throat> this is undoubtedly uh, one of the most famous uh, events in the Bible. So leading up to that, <clears throat> verse 17 of chapter 13, this is page 55 if you're using the Pew Bible. <clears throat> when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, he's saying this straight shot up by the Mediterranean Sea, let's see, looking your way, this way, uh, would have been the straight uh, uh, path into the promised land. But he knew they would encounter Philistine, uh, Philistine resistance and fortresses along the way. And that would discourage them. So he doesn't lead them that way. He leads them another way. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And we're told in caravans that they're very long and often at night, The front uh, part have fires lit to help the back know where they're going. And then smoke even during the day. So God's just using the basic means that everybody does to get them through the desert, right? Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihiroth, Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Ziphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. 
Egypt, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihaharoth in front of Baalzevon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel... Moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you will enable us 
to grow in our understanding of your great rescue of your people, both then and now, to better honor and glorify you and be in awe of you for your deliverance of Israel and to be all the more in awe of you and to entrust ourselves to you for your far greater deliverance in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, bless us, for we are weak and can do nothing in and of ourselves. Oh, Lord, come to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many of you, no doubt, and I know many of you know it a lot better than I do, uh, about the Battle of Dunkirk in World War II. Uh, During May of 1940... The German invasion of France and Belgium resulted in a pincer activity that entrapped uh, close to 400,000 Allied troops at Dunkirk, a port uh, town, a port that is just east of the uh, Belgian-France border. And one of the most bizarre things is that at that point, May 24th, the Germans halted and a command came down that they would halt for three days. In those three days, the Allied forces were able to build somewhat of a defense around the city and the British Navy was able to begin a rescue mission, an evacuation of the troops from Dunkirk. On May 25th, the evacuation began On May 26th, the Germans uh, attacked again. So during this time, uh, leaflets were dropped by the Germans. And the leaflet says, British soldiers, look at the map. It gives your true situation. Your troops are entirely surrounded. Stop fighting. Put down your arms. Uh, It says that the Allied forces mainly use this as toilet paper. Um, But... They say to the land and air-minded Nazis, they just took the water as a a sure destruction uh, of the Allied forces. But to the British, surrounded by water, uh, this was the way of escape. So during this space, as I said, the Navy began its evacuation. Some uh, defenses began to be built uh, around Dunkirk. And it says that the German commander, von uh, Rundstedt, actually later declared that that decision to wait three days was one of the great turning points of the war. That's how critical that decision was. So, as it turned out, 861 vessels were engaged to uh, do the evacuation. Some of them were private boats, right? Fishing boats, uh, There were uh, pleasure boats and public boats like ferries. And some of the smaller boats were able to ferry people back and forth to the larger boats. And of those, 250 were sunk during this great excursion, uh, evacuation. Uh, Over 100 British planes went down and over 100 German planes went down and the fantastic air war that occurred over this evacuation, which began on May 25th, ended the evening of June 3rd. As a result of that, 300 and almost 340,000 troops were evacuated, uh, about 90% of the troops, and only 30 or 40 uh, were captured by the Germans. 
As one account reads, it was at 10.20, June 4th, the next morning, that the German swastika was raised on the very docks where, under the German noses, 340,000 men were evacuated. Um, The dean of St. Paul's was the first to declare this as the miracle of Dunkirk. And in the memorial at Dunkirk, It says, to the glorious memory of the pilots, mariners, and soldiers of the French and Allied armies who sacrificed themselves in the Battle of Dunkirk, May, June, 1940. A magnificent rescue, right? A a magnificent rescue. Unprecedented rescue. And that's what we are dealing with in this account. A magnificent rescue. And this magnificent rescue as we began to talk about last week, forms the whole basis for Old Testament religion, the whole basis for the giving of the Ten Commandments because God comes to them in giving the Ten Commandments and says, I'm the God who rescued you. I'm the God who delivered you from the enemy uh, to make you mine. And this becomes the paradigm for the very deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. As... as Ryan said, rescue is the whole theme of the Bible. It's the whole theme of history. We look at all of history as this great romance of God's rescue of his people and the eternal celebration of that rescue. As you see the theme announced there in Revelation as they're celebrating the lamb that was slain. And this is the theme forever. So this, even the knowledge of God is the knowledge of the rescuing God. There is no other God to know but the rescuing God. And if we are living in our own self-righteousness and our pride and our independence and we don't need that God, of course, we are rejecting the only God that there is. And of course... There wouldn't be such a rescue. I mean, we, we can see how visibly how necessary the rescue was for the Israelites. Absolutely helpless before the onslaught of the Egyptian army. And we'll see we're just absolutely as helpless in our sin. Under the thumb of the enemy of sin and Satan. And we have no hope except for God's rescue of us. So it is this magnificent rescue that we come to celebrate. Uh, We come to uh, embrace the God of this rescue and to uh, rejoice in him and and then bring his rescue to to the world, right? That's that's our whole life. And, And, of course, our work, our families, our involvement in the community, everything is a function of that rescue work. It makes everything we do uh, colored with the beauty of living out rescue in this world, living out our new life of being rescued uh, in this world. So two simple uh, points here. First, God's sovereignty in drawing out the Egyptians. And then we'll look at God's sovereignty in destroying the Egyptians and delivering Israel. The first is God's sovereignty in drawing out the uh, Egyptians. Um, and as you see several times here, God is doing all of this to get his glory. It's to make his glory, his magnificence, his power known. 
And so that's why we're focusing on this sovereign aspect. That's, that's what cries out to us in this uh, event, the mighty power of God that rescues. It's very interesting that God led them the way he did. As we read in the end of 13 and beginning of 14, he doesn't take them by the short route by Philistia. But then as he heads south and east, he, they, they actually get to the edge of the wilderness. And all they have to do is just move on into the wilderness. But then God circles them back and plants them at this incredibly vulnerable position against the Red Sea. He does it on purpose, okay? He does it on purpose. Uh, they're, uh, they're literally become sitting ducks. And I learned one time what that meant. I was at a friend's cabin on the lake in Louisiana. And we're just sitting there looking out over this lake. And there are trees and it's a little marshy in places. And suddenly in the distance, this Tremendous commotion in the water, just rustling water, and, and then something hit, and I couldn't tell what was happening. And I said, what's going on? And he said, oh, that's an eagle getting a duck. And he flew, in fact, right to the property I was on and sat on a tree like 30 feet away. I get to watch an eagle eat a duck. Anyway, <laughs> uh, a little gruesome for sure. Um, but... What, what, this is a sad situation for the ducks, but these were ducks that couldn't fly with the flock. They couldn't fly. They were sitting ducks, right? And I, I just think of the eagle that morning, you know, what are you going to do today? I don't think I'll have duck. <laughs> just go down, get your duck, eat it. Tomorrow, next day, go down, get a duck, eat it. That's what a sitting duck is. And God purposely caused them to be sitting ducks. And he explains why. He says, basically, I want to tempt Egypt into my trap. I want to draw them into this position where they think they're going to win and it's going to collapse on top of them. It's a lot like a situation, and these are scattered throughout thousands of years of military history. Uh, This... Uh, faint weakness, <clears throat> but here's one, okay, December 21st, 1866, Captains Fetterman and Brown led this troop of 81 men from Fort Phil Kearney, and they were to drive away a, 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 what looked to be a small group of Native Americans that were uh, attacking a train, a wagon train. So they get there, and they disobey orders not to go over a certain ridge that was considered dangerous to go over the ridge because of the the territory. But they were confident. Uh, They wanted to engage uh, the Native Americans. They thought that they could do it. They went over the ridge. In fact, one of the leaders of the little troop of of, uh, bandits, as they would call them, uh, looked like he had an injured horse even. You know, so these people are weak. They're, we're going to find them, wipe them out. Well, these 81 men descend into 2,000 warriors. They say it was a bigger group than was at the Little Bighorn with Custer. And uh, 
Yes, all 81 were massacred. Well, I want you to understand that God was doing the same thing to Egypt. This is a military tactic on God's part. Draw them out to a weakened position in which with far superior power, you would overwhelm the enemy. I hope that'll make, give you a little pause as it does me. A little pause for the judgment and power of God. And how dangerous and foolish it is to run against this God. To ignore this God. So, the Egyptians, knowing that these are the ex-slaves, uh, a group of helpless ex-slaves... Uh, had no idea that they were walking into an ambush, that it was a sting operation on God's part to bring them down. And he did it to gain glory over Pharaoh. It is said about Pharaoh that, uh, in fact, the, the writings about Pharaoh, that he was regarded as a virtual god in the chariot. And that only Pharaoh, uh, that, that no one could oppose Pharaoh. He was unapproachable, invincible when he went to war. That's the way he was depicted as the great manifestation of God and power on earth. And you can just sense God saying, yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see who is God on earth. We'll see who is sovereign in the world. This is the declaration God's absolute sovereignty in the world. But I want us to think about this a bit in our own situation. <clears throat> and this is very encouraging to me as I've thought about it this week. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talks about this terrible weakness of some kind that he had. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. And no matter how many guesses there are, we really don't know what it was that Paul was suffering but Paul obviously thought that if he could remove, or if God would remove this thorn in the flesh, he would be able to minister the gospel in a much better way. Because he prayed. It says he prayed three times, but it may mean that he prayed uh, endlessly or, or you know, the full amount. We don't know how many times he prayed. It may stand for I prayed until I, I just was prayed out almost, you know, that kind of thing. And it just wasn't removed. And what's interesting about this is that he calls it a messenger from Satan. A messenger from Satan. Now, do you think that Satan intended this for Paul's good? You think this messenger of Satan was hoping that this would bring some good in Paul's life and I hope it will promote his happiness, etc. No, we know that on the part of Satan, whatever he was allowed to do or his demon a cohort or whatever, whatever he was allowed to do, he was, his intention was to dishearten Paul. His intention is to disrupt Paul's ministry. His intention, if possible, is to destroy Paul. And yet, it was an ambush. You see? It was an ambush. What he hoped to do to Paul, Paul says, in my weakness is where I found my strength. 
a new strength, a new capacity, new opportunities for the gospel, a new effectiveness. New ministry went forth because of the enemy attacking. It was an ambush. And so I hope that you'll understand God, in that sense, is always in a sting operation with the enemy. When the worst things happen to you, when you have the worst setbacks imaginable, it seems that the enemy has overwhelmed you. It's just setting it up for an ambush in which God will bring about a good in your life that you couldn't have imagined that really wouldn't have happened except that the enemy is attacked. He uses our weakness. He uses our stumblings, even our failures, to bring glory to his name. What the enemy intends to, by bring, that will bring you down or ruin you or make you give up or make you abandon ship, God will use all the more to manifest his character and the love of Christ in your life. So in that sense... Because we are safe in God's hands, because he has dedicated himself that nothing will stand in the way of his good work in our life until the day of Christ Jesus, then you really are unassailable. He really does mean it, as Ryan underscored. If God is for you, who can be against you? Nothing. No one. Even the worst that Satan would bring by God's grace and absolute sovereignty, he will turn it and use it for good. He will always trump the enemy. He will always do an end around on the enemies. And so the battle always belongs to Christ, never to Satan. This whole setup at the sea was God's doing from the movements of Israel that drew Pharaoh out to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to even leave, to change his mind at what have we done. And then at the Red Sea, right at the point where anybody in military would think, don't go into that sea. (laughs) Don't do this. This is crazy. You'd be insane to do that. It says he hardened his heart. And he ran into the sea. You see, all along it's to show that God is God. He was in charge of this. It's underscoring at every point that God was orchestrating everything. And God was not just guiding them from something away from Egypt. If that was the case, we'd just gone on into the wilderness. He was guiding them to the glory of his name. And that's what he's doing with your life. The most terrible things that happen when you're pushed to the edge, you think, I just can't go on anymore. Maybe physically, maybe emotionally. At least no, but oh Lord God, you are God and king in my life. And you will ambush the enemy. I love how it is said in verse 2 of the song that the Lord is my strength and my song. And verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. (laughs) That is so, so good. 
not saying he's a man, of course, but he's using that analogy. The Lord is a warrior and he is fighting for you. He will always fight for you. I think of the turnaround in uh, the, Lord, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when the stone table on which Aslan, who represents Christ, was uh, killed. And to all that around, that was the end of it. The white witch wins. He's dead. And the, the girls come the next day and uh, they find Aslan to be alive. And Aslan says of this, if she had known the deeper magic, the magic before the world began, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. (laughs) So here it was in Christ's great weakness when you know, because Satan was the mover in uh, Judas' heart. Satan was the mover of all the evil that was done against him. All to destroy and wipe him out. And in that greatest weakness when he looked the most terrible, not even like a human being anymore, just a piece of garbage on a tree. In that moment, it was an ambush. (laughs) A glorious ambush. And death went backwards. And resurrection came forth. And redemption broke out to the whole earth. Who would have thought (laughs) at that moment, this moment of weakness, of drawing the enemy in, is his death. So, John Owen, the death of death in the death of Christ. See, that's an ambush. The death of death in the death of Christ. Well, God's sovereignty in drawing them out. And then, more briefly, God's sovereignty in destroying the Egyptians and delivering the Israelites. The Israelites at the Red Sea, when they see Pharaoh coming, because they thought they were done with Pharaoh, right? Surely it's over. It's like you watch a movie and this guy's been shot three times and it's over and you know, the woman's walking away, she finally, and then he's up again and scares you half to death, right? That's what this is like. Where did he come from? How could, we did, he was just wiped out, and now he's back alive. He's jumping me again in the dark. And they're kind of like Aunt B and uh, Andy Griffith here, because I love this verse, verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Well, they never really said that, of course, but I think of Aunt B when she's so charmed by some shyster. You know, he's so handsome and, and uh, debonair and everything. And then they find him out that he's really a liar. And she says, I knew it. I knew he was a liar from the start, you know. So they're kind of changing the whole tune, you know. They're reading backwards into this. I told you we didn't want to do this. This uh, deliverance, as we said, at the Red Sea... You can read about it in Psalm 78. You can read about it in Psalm 106. You can read about it several times in Isaiah. It's a, it's a metaphor that's used again and again. And when Israel is brought out of exile from Babylon, the, the picture that's painted is built around the deliverance from Egypt. You, you, it, it's described in terms of the parting of the waters. Well, there were no parting of the waters when they were brought out of Babylon, but this this colors everything they say about salvation after this. 
And this certainly shows that in man's extremity, that's where God's opportunity is, as one commentator says. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. Pharaoh, as we've said, it's repeated, isn't it? Pharaoh, all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen. He's, his army is described carefully. The, the crack chariots, the 600 that are, are the, the, uh, they're, they're the, uh, the Green Beret. You see, they're the Navy SEALs of the Egyptians. And then the others have three to a chariot. It talks about a commander in each chariot. And they have uh, paintings and uh, sketches on walls that depict the Egyptian chariots as having a commander with two others in the chariots. And so we don't even know how many of those plus the other troops, this mighty army. The greatest fighting force uh, that the world knew at that point was the Egyptian army. And it's interesting that all night long God separates the water. And then at daybreak, when the sun god Ra that they worshipped was rising, that's when they went under. Pretty cool. Sun God Ra? Yeah. Let's, let's pick that moment when the mighty sun God rises that I'm going to take you down. And so it happened to them. This uh, enactment, this even description of the dividing of the waters calls to mind creation itself. And the dividing of the waters above and below. And the appearance of dry land. It's a purposeful reenactment of creation. And some of the language of chapter 15 describes uh, the deep waters that had go, uh, to, that they've been regathered up to function in God's stead. And I love how it describes them as these walls on both sides. We, we had a levee in uh, Monroe that divided Monroe and West Monroe. And when the few times it snowed really, really good, that's where we sled on the levee. Big, steep levee. And I just love this God building a levee with water, right? The levee of water. Wait, what's holding up the le- oh, oh, that Oh, that. Okay, that's water. Okay. <laughs> you know, just imagine this glorious thing. And with all the attempts to make this sea of reeds and make it make sense somehow that this could just happen naturally, uh, that is not what is being described here. It's being described in this marvelous uh, actual miraculous work of God in dividing waters. <clears throat> and what's incredible about this is the means, what the Egyptians thought was going to be the means of Israel's destruction became not only the means of their deliverance, but then the means of the Egyptians' destruction. That's the sovereignty of God. That's God choosing to do what he wants to and not what man chooses to ultimately. That instrument of if Israel's destruction becomes the great instrument of their own destruction. And there's much more we could say about this passage and about the, the drama of it. Uh, but let's draw some uh, conclusions from it. This certainly speaks to the great The great power of God, as you see this, you've got to relate this to the great power of God in our salvation from sin. Because we are described in the same kind of helpless condition as the Israelites were 
before the sea. We're described as enslaved. We're described as being dominated by sin, as being run basically by Satan, as, as those who are so entrapped and, and ruled by Satan that we are held captive. Here's a phrase of Paul. We're held captive to do his will by nature. And for us, there's no one out. There's no way out. We're even said to be dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we won't even respond to the gospel by nature. It, it says no one, see, no one seeks for God. It says no one understands. It says the things of God are foolishness to us by nature. And they can't be understood except if the Spirit enables us. He says in another place, we will not submit to God. Jesus himself says, no one will come unless the Father draws him. You see, helpless, helpless to save ourselves, helpless. We won't believe, we won't repent. We refuse him. We don't like God by nature. And so every time a person comes to Christ, it is an act of sovereign rescue just like this. He gives faith. He gives repentance. Salvation is compared to creation. He says, just like in creation, he said, let there be light. So he shines the glory of Jesus into our hearts. It's no less than creation. The sovereign God must do this. He renews our heart. It says it's a resurrection. It says it's a new creation. How many ways can he say you're helpless and you're totally rescued by God? So that you cannot save yourself. You can't generate your own faith. You can't take your guilt away before God. We don't even know all the evil that is in us. Or as we make excuses, we justify it, we're blind to much of it, we ignore it, we play it down, and we deny it. But in all of this, we know something of how many things we've said and done and sought that are wrong and hateful and bent in upon ourselves. And... Every day brings more and more and more and more. And we can't do anything about it on our own. We are so absolutely helpless, just like Israel. But this is really, in a sense, it's really good news. Good news in that we can helplessly trust this God to magnificently rescue us as well. To magnificently, in all of his power, come down to the depths of our weakness and failure. And make us clean through the precious work of Jesus Christ. To take our sins away that we could never take away ourselves. To make us acceptable before him, which we could never do on our own. We're just digging our hole deeper, more and more deeply. So that in him we could be made accepted. And for you believers... When you read in Ephesians that he is powerfully working within you, he tries to measure it by the glory of God. He says, according to the glory of God, the eternal riches of his glory, the magnificence of all that he is, the spirit is working in you. You see, Paul, again and again in Ephesians, tries to measure the greatness of the power that is working within us to transform us. And so as you see the power of Exodus, you see the power of God's deliverance of us, 
realize, as Paul says, the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead. That's what's at work in you. And I want you to know that. I want you to believe that. This God, this powerful God is set to rescue and to continue to rescue and to bring you to his kingdom in the end. And I want to return finally to this idea of fighting because it says that you, all you have to do, and that, no, kids, you can't use this word, right? And that's not really what it says, but I'm just saying it for emphasis. He says, I will fight for you and you have only to be silent. I'd like to read it as, I will fight for you. Shut up. <laughs> just shut up. Be quiet and watch it. Watch what's going to happen. I love that. I will fight for you. I will fight for you. Some of you maybe have read the book, The Reavers. uh, Won the Pulitzer Prize, William Faulkner's last novel. And in this book, the boy Lucius Priest goes to Memphis with... Uh, Boone Hagenbeck, who's kind of the manager of their farm, they get there by Boone stealing Lucius' grandfather's car. And that's why it's called the Reavers, because Reaver means robber or thief. So they go to Memphis, and the they discover the stowaway net on the way, but that's a whole other wonderful part of the the book. But actually, Boone is going up there to hope to get the hand of Miss Corey. Miss Corey works in a brothel, okay? And give away the story, but in the end, they get married and she's rescued and all that. So that's a good part of the story. But in the story, um, Lucius meets the nephew of Miss Corey. And he's a vicious boy, a little bit older than Lucius and a mean-spirited, violent boy. And he says some evil things about Miss Corey. And Lucius fights him. And the nephew pulls a knife and cuts Lucius. And later that night, Miss Corey um, is at his side and she's mending his wounds. And she says, I've had so many men fight over me. But I've never had a man fight for me. And, and this is the God that we have. This is, the, this is the only God there is. The rescuing God. Okay? The rescuing God. The one who fights for us. The one who fights for you all the time. The one who fought for you on the cross. Fought for you by giving his life up for you. Fought for you by becoming flesh. Giving himself up for your sake. To rescue you. And that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 3, as he's facing all the glory of this deliverance, all the glory manifested in the parting of the Red Sea, he says, this is nothing, this is no glory compared to the glory that has come in Christ Jesus. Like a candle in the dark, it really means something, but you take it in the noonday sun, it's nothing anymore. And he says, the parting of the Red Sea? Yeah. In the end, not that much after you've seen the revelation of God sacrificing himself for sinners. There's the glory. 
the God who fights for his people. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you. You are a God who fights for his people. We praise you, Lord, that even in this destruction and deliverance at the Red Sea, we've been given a picture of what will happen in that last day, Lord, when you come to judge the earth, and you'll judge it, and you'll purify it, as Second Peter uses the analogy of fire, the metaphor fires. You purify the earth, you recreate the new, and create the new heavens and the new earth. And Lord, that which will destroy the wicked and remove them forever, even as the Egyptians were removed, will be the means of our salvation in Christ. And we will be brought through the waters. We'll be brought through the judgment safe in Christ. And we'll live with you forever and ever in the promised land. We thank you, Lord, for that glorious hope that we have in Christ. We praise you, O God. Amen.